What does the word intentional mean for you? To me, it means that, uh, you know, it's, it's more than a, you need to have a plan for it, you know, otherwise it's just, just, a just a wish, you know, being intentional about something is like, you, you got to have some plan around it. And by plan, I don't mean the details, uh, you, you know, you need to have some structure You're saying that this is what I'm ready to give up for it. And this is what I want to actually get there. And this is at least my current hypothesis of the steps that are involved. It's fine if this won't work out, but uh, unless you're doing that, it's not intentional. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. So we are diving into episode 298. Pretty huge deal on episode 300. We have a lot of fun things to come. I interview my partners, Matt and Pat, and we talk about what does intentional growth mean? What are we doing with the podcast and show? Uh, we've got a whole new structure and uh, content strategy that we're launching on episode 300. So make sure to watch out for that. And if you did not catch last week's episode, I interviewed uh, Dr. Craig Everett, who is a professor at Pepperdine University, and he's got the private capital market study that we dove into how investors view risk and the returns and valuations they need for the companies that they're investing in. And so we talk about multiples where valuations come from. We really dive into the weeds, which I on how to view your company as a financial asset, which is going to be a continued theme after episode 300. And so I would recommend going and checking out the Intentional Growth Financial Assessment. There's a link in the podcast show notes or on our on our website page. And what it is, it's two, 22 questions. And Pat and I have the financials organized into four different categories. And it, we give you a score on each of them so you can see how to tie your three financial statements together, look at the history and the trailing 12 months and extract data and trends so you can take action on them looking at the budgeting and then the out your projections so you can project out the value of your business just like a private equity firm would. And you can truly see the value of your business in the future, your distributions, your taxes, all tied to the growth rate with all your business decisions. So you can truly see what is the impact of my decisions today on cash and the future value of the business. And then on the results page, we've got five videos where we show you what good looks like based on how we organize the financials for our CFO clients. So on to this episode of episode 298. I have Girish Redekar on the show today, and he is the current co-founder of Sprinto. And but he sold Red. I'm sorry, he sold Recruiter Box, and we're going to dive into his entire journey of bootstrapping this SaaS business into a company that had 2,500 clients into the eight-figure mark, all the way to an all-cash offer by a private equity firm in California. Oh my gosh! I'll tell you what. The level of clarity and his ability to articulate his mindset and the, the trade-offs and choices that he had along the journey, why they decided not to raise any funds, why they decided to reinvest the cash flow back into product development and customer support versus sales. I mean, just unbelievably clear and articulate the entire way. I thought Girish was unbelievably intentional along his entire journey. And I just really respect his ability to look back into the, the hindsight and say, okay, here's what was going on and here's why we made these choices. And then he talks about how he landed on what he's doing today with sec automating security and compliance for SaaS companies. Unbelievably amazing interview. I really hope you enjoy this interview with Girish. So thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the interview. 
sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Garish, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Ryan? Doing good. And uh, this is, you know, I just have to take a uh, pause to reflect that you are in India, I'm in Minnesota, and here we are having a conversation. And I'm just, it's so cool we're able to do this. And I know I've been doing it for many years, but I, how else would I have gotten able to meet people like you and hear what you're doing across the world? And so... What, for the listeners that might not be familiar with you and your background, why don't you just kind of give us a flyby of a little bit of the, the milestones of what you've done and what you're doing now, and then we'll come back and unpack the story. Um, sure. So, yeah, like you said, I'm Girish. I'm, I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Sprinter.com. Um, at Sprinto, we, we, we really help uh, other software businesses become compliant with these, uh, these frameworks like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, etc. And if that sounds like an alphabet soup, I don't blame you. Um, <laughs> the, the simple uh, th- way to think about this is uh, if you're in a software business today, uh, uh, m- most probably you're, you're building what is called as a cloud-hosted software, which means that that my data is on your servers and I need some assurance that you're keeping my data safe and secure. So, so these compliances are some sort of, uh, you know, badges for you to prove to me that, hey, you, you take care of uh, some of these things that I might have concerns about. And these become important. Uh, it helps our customers close large ticket enterprise deals. So that, that's uh, one of the most important reasons that they do this. Uh, personally, I'm a developer first. Uh, I'm happiest when I'm writing code, uh, though as a founder of a company and a, uh, you know somebody who runs a business, I end up doing a bunch of other things. Uh, <laughs> this is also not my first software company. Before this, I ran another B2B SaaS company called RecruiterBox. We grew it to more than 2,500 customers, I think 80% of who were in the US. So uh, I have done this uh, gig a little bit before. Um, I ran that company from 2011 through 2018, at which point I uh, we exited the company to a private equity firm in the in the valley. So, uh, so, so that's that's kind of been my like my rodeo. Uh, uh, I love it. Yeah. And you're just getting started, right? <laughs> yeah. So I want to I want to like take back and give some context. Like, how did you get into security and software and entrepreneurship? Did you you know what was a couple of the the milestones that led you to the first the first business oh that uh yeah i think i'd I'd perhaps be one of the most incidental entrepreneurs that way i i never thought that i was going to be a business owner or run a company or run a startup at all if you told me in uh, college in fact that i'm going to run a software company i would have called you nuts i I didn't think uh (laughs) Uh, that, that was what I was going to do. Um, so, uh, you know, here I was, uh, I did a couple of jobs. I was basically an analyst. Uh, and and w- what that meant uh, for the most part is that I was wrangling spreadsheets and PowerPoints and crunching numbers uh, for the most part. So I, I'd never written code professionally. And so I and my then friend and now co-founder, uh, Raghu, we, we used to, you know, just discuss a bunch of ideas once in a while saying that, hey, you know, it'd be cool if you build this, it'd be cool if somebody built that and, and so on and so forth. And, and I think it got to a point where we were sort of thinking that the natural thing to do, uh, you know, uh, if we just looked at our friends around us was to 
hey, you got to do an MBA. That's how you grow in life. And uh, somehow <laughs> both of us weren't really that convinced. And it, it, it sort of happened that, you know, you, you, we were either going to do an MBA or try at hand, our hand at, you know, building one of these ideas that we had. And uh-huh. I, I don't exactly know how, or uh, but, but we picked uh, going after building out a business. And that's that's roughly how it happened. We were pretty naive then. Like, we didn't know what, what the hell we were doing. I think we spent we, a couple we, of years. I was going to say, isn't that the, isn't the, is, well, I can't remember how the quote goes, but like, I mean, when you jump off and you become an entrepreneur, you think it's going to be way easier. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in a way uh, it helped that we didn't know enough because that's the only reason why we would do that stupid thing that to jump into it. Because uh, I, I think if I was, uh, you know, more knowledgeable or more smarter, I, I'd likely not have done that because Honestly, uh, for the first couple of years, we built a, a few things and none of them flew. Uh, and, and it was frustrating and uh, it was painful and uh, we were broke. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of the th- things that really happened during that period is that because we were broke, uh, it, it meant that, you know, building these things, uh, we had to teach ourselves programming. So, so the, the, I think in hindsight, if I connect the dots, the, the most useful thing that happened there was we taught ourselves programming. We could we, we taught ourselves how to build these things ourselves, um, mm-hmm. you, you know, and we got pretty good at that. So by the time we actually built Recruiter Box, which was a couple of years later, uh, you know, we, we, we pros at programming ourselves, building products ourselves, and, and we we could do that thing and thankfully recruiter box worked and you know from there on we were actually building a business but until then we were just i, I don't know i, I would just flopping yeah. around man i've been yes. i've been there just trying to figure trying to figure out who's going to pay me for what at some point i just want to bring value to the world but i'm not sure exactly how to how to thread that needle <laughs> exactly yeah that was that is that is how it was so I want to, before we get into Recruiter Box and how you guys actually started and grew that, I'm super curious on a more of a cultural thing, Girish, is that in India is like, how, what's, what's the perception of becoming an entrepreneur? Because like, if I were to go back from the things that I've heard from 10, 20 years, it will call it a couple couple decades ago, entrepreneurship wasn't as common in America. I mean, it always has been, but it's been more and more prevalent. But like other in, in our society, it's like, hey, it's OK to fail. You know, in yeah. India, is it more the is the MBA track and going like the traditional professional route more common or like how do, how did people view entrepreneurs? Um, so, so it's definitely different today than uh, at least. Uh, and, I, and I don't know if I can sort of paint the entire of India in, in kind of like one one brush. Uh, I think it definitely differs in pockets. For example, uh, for, for my uh uh, for my friend and co-founder, he, he came from a family uh, uh, where, where they used to do business. You know, so, okay. so, they, so, so it was relatively easier for him. Uh, it, it was relatively harder for me because uh, my parents thought that I was just nuts. Uh, I, I don't think, uh, I, and to, to be perfectly honest, like, I think they they just lied to you know their friends about what I was up to. It helped that I was in a different city. So uh, you know the. They would rather have me being a professor, teaching something, or, or anything else. Uh, but but doing doctor, business, lawyer, and like whatever the typical yes. route is that, that's easy to describe at a, a family party, right? Yeah, and, and you know, uh, two years down, when when I had nothing to show for it, it uh, those fears were only uh, more and more validated. So it is, uh, I would say, uh, relatively harder. Uh, given uh, you, you know like like which pocket of india you 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 might be from um, mm-hmm. so so you could uh, you know get lucky or uh, not be as lucky about those things so it can happen uh, i think on an overall level yes it is uh, I, I think it's changing a lot today as compared to you know about mm-hmm. 14 years ago when i was first doing this 
yeah it, it, it's it's definitely a lot better today but yes it, it can be hard to explain that hey i'm gonna do a business uh which is well, kind of like it's, a, it's, i think it's so important to note that because entrepreneurship is hard to begin with to find the product price at pricing fit to make sure that people are paying for value that that you're delivering but then all those, the the cultural pressures of not doing it as well right mm-hmm. i mean so like they, there's just a lot that goes on so like when those two years that you were do that you were trying to figure this out what kept you going and then where did recruiter box the idea come from after you tried so many things so honestly, I I don't know if I have a good answer to what kept me going. Uh, I, the, the way I felt at it, like we, we were just, uh, you, you know, like we were just trying to flay our arms and try to stay afloat. Uh, it, it somehow, I, I, I honestly can't say, you know, had Recruiter Box not happened at the time it happened, maybe I would have been on a different path. So so I, I wouldn't be so smug about the fact that, hey, you know, I, I had it in me and, and I was going to figure it out anyway. Um, easy so, to say in hindsight, right? <laughs> yeah, it's easy to say in hindsight. Um, the the thing uh, that did make Box possible, though, is that in some way it sort of threaded to uh, our prior experience as well. Uh, so, so the couple of jobs that I did do uh, before I, uh, you know, uh, started up were... I incidentally joined a couple of teams that were they were hiring themselves, and uh, you know, like I got, got like this experience where I remember in my first job we used to uh, go back to our campus and, and we used to hire new folks from there, and it, it literally was like we, we had booked this conference room and we had like this pile of resumes and, and you know we were just going through them and you're trying to enter that into a spreadsheet, seeing like hey these are the people we want to talk to, these are people that are going into the trash can, and 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 this this whole thing was like basically like a uh, like a three-day process that we that we mm-hmm. did where we were sort of you know sifting through about a few hundred uh, people and and I had uh, uh, remembered that okay you know here, here's one example of a scenario where uh, we didn't really have any structure or process and we were trying to come up come up with it uh, you know as, as we go along and in my second job which was with a fortune thousand company um, we actually had a tool uh, you know uh, which we were supposed to use to manage the hiring the trouble was nobody wanted to use the tool. It was it was way more trouble than you know just using like a spreadsheet. Uh, so, a spreadsheet so I, I, and some pieces of paper, right? <laughs> yeah, and and you 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 wouldn't believe the amount of ingenious ways that people would come up. I and my colleagues to you know we were hiring. We grew from a team of about three people to I think about eighty people in the span of just fifteen months. So we got sucked wow. into hiring naturally. And uh, which which basically meant like we need some way to do this, and and and, and the sort of the, the company had forced this upon us that hey you got to use this tool to keep track of the things, and we would always find some ingenious way to work around it. Like nobody wanted to use it, and uh, I think uh, what we learned the from that I, the reason I'm laughing is because Gears like the, the the amount of people that end up just using spreadsheets when software suck is just ridiculous. It's like yes. <laughs> like who designed this user interface? No one thinks like this. Let's go back to a spreadsheet. <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, I think uh, one of the things then we thought is that hey, there's there's got to be like something between these two worlds, you know, like there's nothing and there's this tool that nobody wants to use. And, and I think the, the, the germination of Box quite simply was that, hey, can we do something that, uh, you know, people like us would might want to use? Uh, had we had access to that in this situation? Um, we, we built that uh we, we showed it around. Fortunately, we found a few customers to begin with that gave us belief. And, and then we sort of went and ran with it. So how did you decide to price it? it like, like, I want to kind of get into your mindset. Like when you're doing this and you're going, okay, haven't been, things haven't been, you know, working and take, getting traction for a couple of years. Now there's some interest and there's some value that people are willing to pay for. 
one is like, what was your thought with the business? Like, so like, how, how did you see what the, what was the opportunity that you were chasing at that point? Um, honestly, I think we had an imposter syndrome for the longest of time. Like I, I wouldn't believe that people wanted to, uh, or, or people valued this product as much as I hoped they would. Uh, so, so you, you know, in in some way, uh, we we really began by pricing it like really low, and and just to for just for context, right? I think over the span of running Recruiter Box, we increases the increase the prices tenfold, uh, and I still think we were cheaper uh, from from the time that we started. And and you know, uh, like in hindsight, I still think uh, you know we, we we should have charged more. So so there, there was this constant thing where you know we used to be like, hey, okay. Uh, I'm going to increase the price or, or I'm going to curtail the free plan to do this. And, and and I was like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next. And I'm bracing myself for <laughs> the whole thing falling apart. And like a few weeks later, it seems to work great. Okay. So, so now I'm comfortable with it. And, and then I would, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, we, we try that a few months later again. And this time, like, okay, this time I've done it. And, and uh, you know, there's no way this is going to fly and, and it would yet work. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I learned to think about thing or two that, uh, you know, like about how other people might view something. Uh, I, I think I always sort of undermined the value of uh, what we were really building uh, in one way. So, so that's one of the lessons from that, uh, from the journey for me. Oh, I, I I can relate, and there are a lot of people that have been on the show, and it's uh, that have described similar circumstances where you, I think you get so so in the weeds of what you know that you don't realize that no one else really knows that as well. You know, what I mean, you you still kind of fear that people are going to find you out, like with with the imposter syndrome, but you don't realize that people don't know these things, and they're willing to pay someone to accelerate their journey. And and it's I totally can relate. How did you guys? A couple questions on the pricing model is like, how, how did you guys price it? And what was kind of the ideal customer? And then how did you guys fund the business? I mean, as you guys were growing. Um, so we were a bootstrap company, uh, you know, uh, so, so throughout, uh, so, so quite simply, we were growing from a revenue and, and that had some implications and fun stories. And I'm happy to get into that in a bit, but, uh, you know, just to, uh, talk about the early part about how we decided to price it and, and who our ideal customer was. Um, I, I think in the early stages, we realized that our, our ideal customers are people who are not recruiters themselves, whose nine to five job is not recruiting. And we were sort of playing on our own persona, you know, hey, we had like a day job, like we were an analyst or we were supposed to do something, but we were pitching into hiring. And so our view of the way we would look at the software is that if you cause me an iota more work than a spreadsheet work. I'm ditching you, right? So, so that's that's pretty. I love high. it. I love it. And, and and that's a pretty high bar. You know, spreadsheets are always easier. You know, and and we, we had to build it in a manner where it, it turns out that there's a lot of small businesses where this is exactly the scenario. Right? You you don't really have like a recruiting team or somebody whose nine to five job is to to worry about recruiting. You have somebody who is a programmer or is a manager or somebody else, and they're doing something else, and they got about half an hour or day to sort of log in here, check what's happening, uh, do that interview, leave that feedback, get out of here. Like they, they just, they, they don't want to spend a minute more than they would have to. And that was our ideal uh, persona to begin with. Uh, I, I just got to, I'm, I'm laughing my absolute ass off right now because that's me and my business partner right now. So yeah. like, I mean, like we have indeed, so last year I went through 750 CFO resumes. I did a hundred interviews and then we hired four and we're doing the same thing this year. And I got to hand it off to our new partner. But like, 
I had like spreadsheets, Google Sheets, and then I had this intake form. And I'm like, I hate this shit so yes. much. I just want to go speak. I want to do the podcast. I want to do other things. So I'm like, I'm just laughing because I can totally relate. And it's like, how do you outsource that when someone needs to have that level of care and touch? But then there's so many administrative tasks that are woven into it. So I just got it. I just had to tell you. <laughs> like, yeah, and, and I can completely relate. This is, this is exactly right. And, and I think uh, th- there was there was something that was uh, very useful for us because we then could design the product around that. You, you know, like it was it was basically a no nonsense thing. You get in, you do your job, and you can get out. Where where uh, you know, like whereas a bunch of other tools were adding a lot of bells and whistles and 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 things into it. We we did make uh, Recruiter Box powerful, but we never lost sight of the the fact that this is a persona. And, and you know, if if you don't give them what they want, uh, they're likely not going to use you anyway. So uh, th- this I was this it. was a useful insight for us. How how did you guys price it? And was it like would you have like enterprise licenses or were you user based? And the reason kind of leading into then the the bootstrapped and how you guys built it. Yeah, so so uh, we 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 thought about pricing it uh, at some point about number of uh, you know per seat, but but then we realized precisely for this reason that we are talking about is a lot of people who use Recruiter Box were not using it on a uh, you know on a consistent basis. There's just some people who are just going to take interviews and, and nothing else. There are some mm-hmm. people whose whose responsibility is to make sure the process moves along. You know, this is potentially a manager in the team who's who's yeah. is going to run. Uh, there are some people who have varying degrees of uh, responsibilities around your hiring process, and they just literally grudge pitching time uh, to, to help you along right so if you price it on a per seat model that just that just breaks my mental model of how I am thinking about it right like because mm-hmm. I don't think every seat is the same and, and I, I really don't think like if, if you're going to tell me that this is going to cost you ten dollars or a user a month and i'm like hey I, I don't really use that that much i use mm-hmm. gmail all day long and i'm praying <laughs> you know whatever six or ten dollars a user a month and, and you're asking me for this then that, it doesn't make sense in my head so what we eventually ended up pricing it by is by the number of open positions that you're hiring for which oh, was cool. a better value metric for our for, for our customers so, so that that gave us some sense of you know uh, what your volume of hiring is and, and if you are uh, you know you tend to be a larger company then it just means that you're hiring across more positions and that that that's a simple thing that worked for us eventually. Super cool because then like if you think about like how that's tied into people's current understanding is like, you know, if they wanted to go hire a recruiter, they would pay a commission per candidate. Not like like you're not gonna have seats all over the place. So super interesting. So what was the thought process behind the bootstrap and not raising any funds? Like did you not did you did you intentionally not choose? Did you intentionally choose not to raise funds or was it mm-hmm. the bootstrap just kind of the route that made sense? Um, honestly, we were not very ideological about it that, hey, we're not going to raise funds or, or we have to raise funds or anything of that. But, you know, at any stage of the business, when we asked ourselves, like, hey, what do we need to figure out? Like, what, what's really next? And it always turned out that we, we never felt that capital was the problem or, or, or basically the highest order bit that was help, uh, you know, stopping us from, from solving the business problem at hand. It, it used to be something around the market, something we needed to figure out and, and something that we had the levers internally for. So the way I look at, uh, you know, capital or venture funding is, is basically what are you trying to solve? You, you know, like, uh, uh, so, so my, my current company is a venture funded business and for specific reasons. But, you, you know, at, at that point, when we asked this question for, for ourselves, uh, and we did ask that many times along the journey, the, the answer was never that, hey, you, we need capital or we need funds in order to solve this specific business problem that is basically, I think, the highest order or the top three problems that, that we need to solve as a business. It wasn't like that. It was something else always. And th- that, that's the reason why it turned out like that. 
Super fascinating. So what what metrics were you looking at? You know, it, it, in kind of a two part part of this question is like, what metrics were you looking at to, to make the decisions of like, hey, what's going to move the needle and how, like the product roadmap or where you're going? And um, how did you get those insights being the first time entrepreneur? Uh, I, I think we heard it. The, uh, we learned it the hard way because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure we made like a ton of mistakes. And, and you know, even to figure out like what we were talking about earlier about who our ideal customer was, uh, it took us a while to really understand that. Uh, you know, like uh, it sounds all crystal clear in, in hindsight, but I think it uh, from the time we started Recruiter Box, it took us a couple of years to just really internalize and understand that. And um, I think uh, this is where uh, my co-founders were, uh, you know, uh, a lot better than me at, at sort of drawing these patterns in, and, uh, you know, trying to figure out what really the market wanted. So I think we did a couple of things overall pretty well. Uh, a, uh, us founders, uh, we used to run customer support for the longest time possible, including when we, uh, you know, we, we started having hired people. So there was literally a time where, uh, you know, I, I remember that I and my co-founder would work in a, uh, it, it, we would do this relay where, uh, you know, he used to work till I think uh, 2 a.m. Uh, past midnight. Oh and, and then I would I, I would basically wake up at 5 a.m. Uh, and and we, we used to use the pseudonym as a support person. So it, for, for a customer, it would view like, uh, seem like it's it, the answers are coming from the same person so, so we, we we just had uh, you know one support person so sort of uh, who would answer to all, all, all the queries but it was it was just being like relayed between me and my co-founder and oh, cool. uh, we, we continued doing that for a long time and uh, first it was out of necessity but I, the reason we continued doing it is because it, it, that's where you really get the gems of your insights you really get to touch feel your your customers what do they care about what their problems are and and you know they, they speak their heart out and and that that's something that we uh, you know did a good job eventually about making a process around it like you know in the sense that we we got to a point eventually where we wish to get somewhere like i think about 120 to 150 new support emails a day um, so that's the volume at which you were running at. And we used to make sure that each and every of those email is read. It, it goes through a process where we understand that, hey, is there something here, which means that we need to do something long term over and over above just telling them that, see, you know, most emails are the song that, how do I do this? And we say that, hey, here's a button, go here, do that. But that mm -hmm. is a signal saying that, hey, this is something that's not immediately apparent. Somebody took the trouble to sit down and write an email to you about that. So, so you know, uh, th <laughs> listen that, to them, right? <laughs> yeah, th th that's feedback for product to that hey okay this 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 workflow is is not as apparent uh, as it ought to be and, and so on and so forth so so we actually came up with a good process eventually of making sure we each and every of those uh, incoming emails were were heard we in fact had one product manager always just assigned to looking at emails that come in and people used to think in a bootstrap company that's a waste but but that that to me was like the the the, the most useful thing that we did so that is so cool, man. Like, and just to completely validate what you just said, there was a gentleman, uh, Brian, he is the founder of, it's called GreenPal, I think is the name of the company. Mm -hmm. It's a bootstrap SaaS company that is like the Uber for lawn care. Mm -hmm. And him and his co-founder literally did exactly like the same story where they're like, that's how they figured out how to ma master their product. He's like, dude, we still do customer service and we're doing like 30 million or whatever the heck it is. So it, it, I think it's super fascinating. How did you take those insights, vet them through, and integrate that into your product roadmap? And prioritizing, I guess, like, like, like yeah, one more uh, is like, how did you prioritize the all the? Because I'm assuming there was a lot of ideas in there. Yeah, exactly. So one thing uh, that really helped is to uh, uh, you know have an idea of who your ideal customer really is. Uh, 
Um, and uh, that that once we got a clearer idea of who our ICP is, one of like we would always ask the question that hey, okay, we, we'll always get a lot of other fringe customers who are really not your ICP. Um, but uh, you, you know, you, you in order to keep your spine of your business intact, you need to make sure that you are solving the problems of your ICP first. So that was the first uh, you know sort of the simple uh, math of prioritization. If, if, it's, if it's something, if the battle is between something that's helping your ICP versus uh, you know helping like a fringe profile, uh, you go for the ICP. Uh, that by itself doesn't answer uh, too many questions, though. Uh, you know that does uh, that that uh, we would always have uh, feature requests which uh, get into these problems where you know it's it's about the amount of effort that they would take to build out versus the amount of value that you expect to get out of them. And uh, those were always tougher conversations. I I wouldn't say that we really really figured them out uh, even till the end. So so I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm not sure I, we did a great job there. But I think one of the uh, mo most important things that we realized is that, uh, and, and this is one of the things I think we did really well is, uh, remember I was saying that we had a product manager who was listening to purely mm -hmm. all the feedback that used to come. We, we eventually built a team around that product manager uh, and we used to call it the delights team. And the idea over there was, awesome. there is always a lot of low hanging uh, you know, things that you can do that you can quickly build out on your product, fix a bug and, and you know, do those things, which if you put into your main pipeline of the product, they would always uh, seem distracting because, you know, your main product pipeline is something that you sat down and you planned ahead and you planned typically mm -hmm. like a couple of quarters ahead and then you, you have like some plan. And, and then they would one 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 customer would come up and say that hey this is a pain or hey this is an idea or can you do this and now you need to drop everything that you have planned and you know you, you need to pick that up even if it did make sense so most of the time that those kind of things don't get picked up and those ideas tend to get lost so what we really did is that we used to have like a product manager and an engineering team which was aligned purely to do these things sort of delights which is basically mm. hey it, it, these are small things which you fix in time they really really make your customers really happy it's, it, imagine you sending an email saying that hey I have this problem or I have have this idea and two days later you see that in the product like that that i think really helped us uh earn, earned us a few fans that hey okay you you folks are actually listening this never almost never happens that's, that's super cool man and like you know like the the way that i'm thinking about that is like you know in you know whether it's okrs or scaling up rockefeller habits or traction us or whatever it is like there, there's the big rocks or milestones per quarter but then there's like there's sometimes there's just shit that's just a to-do. Like you just got to yes. put it, do the to-do. And if you have to write it down and it takes just as much time to write it down than to do it, it's not a project. But like you, you're, I think you're, you hit on something that a lot of people just drop those off and they just ignore them. Yes. Which is super fascinating. It, you know what? One thing that I'm going to steal a quote from a, a buddy of mine that he has a private equity firm up here in the States. And his model over the last, I think it's been six years, is to go acquire like smaller SaaS companies that are, you know, cash flow positive and well, not necessarily cash flow positive, but they have revenue in the millions or so. And he, he said that a lot of the people that his ideal client or ideal uh, target for an acquisition is someone that was a developer or coder, found an awesome problem that they solved, and they code themselves into bankruptcy pretty much because they don't know how to scale the business. You guys did not do that. Did you guys ever, was that an issue that you saw or like how did you scale up to 2,500 clients and, and avoid the problem of just constantly adding new things without scaling the business? I think uh, we had, I think the basic uh, financial discipline, so to speak of you know, always spending from uh, 
from from what we made uh, you know so at at no point we we actually made very aggressive growth goals in the sense where we were spending more on marketing or sales than than, than we actually had so uh, that that was uh, there was one of the things and i, I suspect it kind of happened because of uh, you know like the background where we spent like two years having nothing and and uh, this was it and and it's it's kind of like you know uh, how the how the depression era people would, would think about money you know it, it's somewhat <laughs> like that you just have a very different view of the whole thing so i yeah. i kind of feel like we uh, we potentially you know gave up some growth in the process we could have potentially grown faster but but you know what we built something in in, in return was like a solid ship so at every point we we, we knew that uh, you know this, this is the, the the revenue that we have that we are making and this is what we have to, to sort of pump back into the business and the growth is going to come from there. So, so we, we ran a tight ship that way. I love it, man. And like, you know, just, it, I, I have so much respect for that because, you know, it, it, there's this whole theory of constraints, right? Like when you have constraints, good ideas come out and then you've got like a good product, good people, you like, and I and like, just as a side comment, the amount of people raising money for these products and services these days that make literally no sense for these valuations. Garrison, like there is someone I know here in town, they've raised an insane amount of money and there's people in their 20s buying million dollar, like couple million dollar houses. And I'm like, well, the company is not forced to figure out how to make any money. They raise all this money. They give everybody, you know, six figure salaries and they've never figured, they're not forced to figure out the product pricing fit which you did. And I, and I think like that is a huge distinguishing difference between some people that are just kind of just raising money, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. Cause you've done that in your current business. Maybe you kind of speak to that. Like how does your current mindset with your current business? And maybe it's the depression era <laughs> kind of the PTSD, but like, how do you view the businesses differently when you've got a, a pile of cash sitting in your bank account? Um, so uh, even in the current business, right? Like the the way we, um, uh, you know, we we kind of had the luxury of raising money uh, before we actually built a product, thanks to our background. You know, so so we could basically say that, hey, you know, this is this is something that we want to build. Uh, what do you think? And then they said, okay, you know, like this, this sounds good. Uh, here's uh, here's some money you can go figure. Um, the the one thing that we did tell our investors in the beginning is that, hey, look, uh, the way I look at this, this is a minimum six seven year commitment when things are going well and you're going really fast and, and i want to make sure that uh you, you know that I'm, I'm going to spend this time on something that's actually worthwhile because honestly uh, uh both for me and my co-founder this this wasn't something that we needed to do we, we made enough money so, so you know like we, we were mm -hmm. good for a while like we this is more about the opportunity cost of the time that we're going to spend on this and i think the uh we, we told our investors that we're going to give this a shot for about 12 to 15 months to see if there's actually value in this business. And, and the nature of our business was that it was a hard product to build. And uh, we, we weren't entirely convinced in the beginning if the product could even be built. Uh, so, so we were trying to oh, automate wow. something that's like a very manual process. And, uh, and while we had the optimism that it, it could, you know, you could actually build this, uh, it needed to be built uh, to, to, to to actually say whether it's, it can be done or not. So, so we were very upfront about that to our investors. And we knew then that given it can be built it's a massive business so i knew that upfront and, and that's thanks to the experience i've had like i've been in the software business before so I, I knew that these are compliances that we need i faced that problem myself when we were running recruiter box so we're very close to that problem so, so i had a little bit of a front row seat to what that business could look like so the level of confidence uh, that we had in the problem was very high and in the market was very high uh, what was unknown for us at the time was whether you could build 
uh, what you what you think you can build uh, and which was uh, you know like a relatively simple bet for us we are product builders uh, like our main dna is that um, we back <laughs> ourselves to build those things uh, and yeah so, so we it, it did turn out that we were able to build that so we you know we quickly followed it up by a series a uh, we were able to pump that into our growth um, so, so those things worked out well but yes the the idea there is about like you remember i was saying that in recruiter box i i never felt that capital was the uh, mm-hmm. the, the the missing link uh, that wasn't the case here here i knew that Got you know the, the 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 problem is uh, i have a solution i know the problem is large the the, the missing link is the capital <coughs> and, and so then i feel confident about hey standing in front of an investor and saying that hey this is the missing link super super helpful that was very clear i appreciate that so going back to recruiter box how, how did you guys what were some of the um the secrets to your scaling of the actual growth like what, what as you're I'm, i can only imagine as you're getting clients you're raising the price and you're doing well and people aren't leaving you and ditching you for for other things how did you guys get up to the 2500 clients and and what did that look like and where were the most of the clients yeah, I think about 80% of our customers were in the US. And uh, one of the things about Recruiter Box was that uh, we were, uh, you know, we were selling to relatively smaller businesses. And, and we quickly realized that the way to do this is, uh, is, is, is to automate the sale process as much as possible. So you can't really do the sale by having humans doing the sale. Uh, that, that just doesn't make economic sense. So for the most part in Recruiter Box, um, we, we, we really designed like a really good engine around people finding us online, signing up, going through a trial period and becoming a paying customer without like a human touch point anywhere in this process. And, and uh, you know, this is fairly figured out. You have different names for it. You call it self-serve, we call it product-led growth. And, and we honestly do not know all this, uh, you know, shiny words around this, but for us, it, it just made economic sense to run that business that way. <laughs> and that's, that's literally how we were looking at it. And I think that that was a fundamental building block of the entire thing. So which, which meant that, you know, we had to put a lot of, uh, effort into figuring this these these four steps out like uh, any blockage between a visitor turning into like a sign up any blockage between a sign up turning out to be what we used to call an activated customer in any activated customer to a paying customer we used to sort of go sort of seek out those problems and, and fix them and that was really the main thing uh, that, that we did so uh, what happened as a result is if, if this is the nature of your business from a customer standpoint uh, you, you know you can sort of see what it meant like scaling internally like we were a large dev team for the most part we didn't have mm-hmm. too many sales people we started adding sales people towards the last couple of years of our business and we started going after a little bit of larger accounts as well but uh, for the most part we didn't have sales people it was a product who was doing the job of the selling which which suited us fine uh, uh, so which which invalidates the, the you know you have in that uh, that delight team and like, I mean, it just, it's just reaffirming why those things that you're doing are working because the product's selling itself. Yes. And uh, in, in some way, uh, you, you, you say that if you have a hammer, the entire world looks like a nail. And, and uh, there was, in a little bit, it was, it was kind of like that. Like we, we, we sort of developed this DNA of doing product things well. So, so we, we sort of, uh, you know, kept doing that better and better. And the business started looking more and more like something that was just like a great business in terms of acquiring customers with completely low touch. And I think uh, toward the end, until toward the end, we were acquiring about 100 new customers a month. And yeah. I think 
80% of those were still being acquired without speaking to a human anywhere in the process. So, so, so that, that's the nature of our business. So, so scaling that way meant two things like, you know, like we had, we, we obviously were an engineering heavy company and we were also basically a support heavy company. Um, so, so we had, uh, uh, you know, like we used to pay a lot of attention to support, like I was saying earlier. So, so we had a lot of people uh, around the clock eventually uh, looking at support and, and making sure we get the right feedback to again, feed it back into the product and, and how we build that out. Super cool, man. And so like, as you guys are growing and you're, I can only imagine, I'm just picturing you and your co-founder for the two years prior to this actually taking off, you know, I don't know where in like, it was the eight year journey or seven year journey, like where as you're scaling and getting some solid infrastructure, Garish, like where did you and your partner go? This is a business. What do we want with this long term? Did that, did that question start entering your guys' mind or conversation? Yeah, often. I mean, all the time. Right? You know, uh, <laughs> Why are we doing this? What's the point? <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, even like we weren't even a year in into this uh, uh, before we started. And uh, I, I remember having this conversation uh, with my co-founders at the time that, you know, hey, uh, you know, like I can see uh, very easily that we're going to be like, a, this is a time when I, I think we are not even making about, we'll probably be at about 50K uh, in annual revenue. And I was, uh, and we went like, hey, it's easy to see why this would become like, you know, 500K or so. Uh, we just keep at it, uh, you, you know, just uh, build it out. Don't do anything stupid. Uh, just go to that. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but what what next? Is is that good enough? What do we need to do next, etc. cetera? So, so this, these conversations used to come often. And we were always at lookout of other opportunities to, to, to sort of do that. In fact, we, we did try uh, a couple of, you know, sort of, products in neighboring areas while we were building Recruiter Box to just see that, you know, if, if any of these could fly, we could sort of accelerate our growth. They didn't really to, uh, map pan out the way uh, we, we wanted them to, but that was, that was one of the things we always kept trying. So this is all constant question because honestly, Recruiter Box is, uh, was in a space, what we call a red ocean, which, which fundamentally means that we had like ton of competition. We, we, we literally mm -hmm. had like... Uh, at some point, we just uh, stopped, uh, you know, even bothering about it because we wouldn't get to know of a new competition every week now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, 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 you know, uh, it, was the, it was that kind of a business in the sense that it's a very mature space, which means that you have more competition coming every time. So it's important to be able to uh, do the... Uh, the small things well uh, th that's the you, the large gaps between the products are all taken you know so there mm -hmm. are no clear large differentiators so you start doing these small things well and it's an aggregate of a large number of small things that really make you stand out so uh, you know that's that's basically how the uh, business sort of got uh, and, and we, we, we tried looking at a few neighboring areas those didn't weren't able to pan out and but thankfully we, we continued growing pretty well uh, you know in, in this process but yeah we used to constantly ask ourselves is this worth it uh, uh, i mean uh, how, how long are we going to do this uh, you know what's what's the next one and, and etc and honestly when the first acquisition offer came along this was this was a thing right you know it, it sort of became like a conversation about hey okay i think we've we've done pretty well with it uh, maybe it's time to move on and do something else uh, from now on so, so that well was and that's i want to i want to pull that thread too because i think you know how it's very intri intriguing to me because I think how you answered the the question is how almost everybody on the show answers it. Who are the founders? We're like, it's more like, what do we want with this business? They 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 describe it in the as in terms of the market opportunity for their product or service, mm -hmm. not necessarily, hey, this business as an entity, an organism, what's it worth, and what can I do with the overall thing 
as it relates to me, my life, the, you know, and other things, where did that start entering into the dialogue with you and your partner? Like, what, did you understand how value was determined in companies or where did that start to come into the picture of like, Hey, this thing's potentially worth something. What, what are the, what are our options? Um, so, so this happened inbound for us. Honestly, we weren't like really looking out for options to say that, hey, now it's now it's time. And, and it sort of, uh, you know, it came inbound and it came at a time where we said, okay, like the offer seems to make sense, at least monetarily, like at, at a very high level, right? And, and uh, uh, I think each one of us thought at the moment that, uh, you know, you just pan out what, what, what Recruiter Box is. Uh, you, you, you do it like three or four years and we could comfortably grow it like into maybe like a much larger business. But is, is that what you really want to do with your with, with, with your career aspirations? Like, like what do you really want to do? And, and we, each one of us felt that, hey, we, we had another startup in ourselves and, and, you know, that potentially be a, like a much larger one. And because Recruiter Box at the end of the day was constrained by the market that it is in. And mm-hmm. that, that sort of meant uh, that there was a certain trajectory which we could not surpass. Uh, so it's, it's important for us to sort of be cognizant of that fact. Um, mm-hmm. And we thought we had given it a good shot, uh, you know. Uh, so mm-hmm. so that's that's basically how the thought process went. Like we actually all felt that, hey, there is there is a there, there is a, a better thing, a, a better use of our time. And it is quite possible that the growth of Recruiter Box is actually bottlenecked by the founders, you know. So there is possibility mm-hmm. that that another, found, another owner or the management team that we had later on, they could actually do a better job than us of actually running this company uh, mm-hmm. or, or moving it faster. So that, that was kind of the thought process when we when we decided to move on. So at that, and, and I want to... Uh in a second, get into the dialogue that you started having and then get to the, to the exit. It, but like at this time when these conversations started happening, was, was there like an executive team? How did your guys' roles, how, what, what were your guys' roles in the business and were they clear? Because I just, again, I'm picturing like, you know, a bunch of developers <laughs> and like, you know, like, was there like an actual organizational structure? Like how did, how did you guys, how did I you think, guys manage that? And go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a great question, and and I think one of the things that we did really well is that uh, we were three co-founders, and, and we, we we sort of uh, you know divided roles between us pretty well uh, at most times. So uh, uh, my third co-founder Raj, uh, he was a CEO. So you know the, the simple thing oh, is we can nice. argue all we want. Uh, his it's his call. Uh, you know, like, like, <laughs> that's uh, awesome. Uh, and, and you know, like uh, we we we, come, we might disagree, but we commit at the end of the day uh, to, to whatever uh, you know his decision is. So that was very clear, uh, and that was, I think, a good thing that we did. And we did it not just uh, you know at the time of the important decision like an exit. Everywhere before that, we we sort of had that thing. I used to look at product uh, uh, for the most part, and my other co-founder Raghu used to look at engineering. So, so that was roughly oh, the, cool. three, the three things, uh, the, the way we, we ran the thing. And we, we had to often talk together, but I don't think we ever got into a position where you know, we're stepping on each other's toes. Like we, I think we had good chemistry between us, and, and, uh, but it also helped to have like a clear way or a clear way that we're going to make decisions. You know things that matter to the company. It's it's Raj's call. Like we could argue all day long and, and, and do everything, but it's his call, and we would we would always uh, uh, you know uh, go by that. And I think that really helped us sort of stay organized and stay sane. It's yeah, that last part, right? It's stay sane, right? <laughs> like yeah. eliminate the the tension, the conflict, man. Yeah. You know, so when you guys got the inbound out of the blue offer, like how did you guys take and then assess it? Did you guys then get other offers in? Did you guys take it to market with an investment bank or what was, what was the setup on that? 
yeah so uh, uh, given that we wanted to consider the offer which was like a conversation on a philosophical level about you know what do we want to do with our lives mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth like given we said that okay this is at least something that we need to consider we, we did realize that we can't just uh, it's going to be a hard exercise to value a business uh, you know it depends on so many factors and it depends on so many uh, you know depends on where the buyer wants to fit the business so if we could have all mm-hmm. the factors about hey this is the size of the business of, of the book and you know how fast we are growing etc and you could do some math to say that hey this is the rough value of the business but oftentimes it happens that the buyer is going to take your business and sort of they have your business shaped whole into something else that they are building mm-hmm. uh, and, and which means the value of your business is much larger than you know just the pure financial terms that uh, that, that you could be doing so so we had to uh, understand this and and we we basically did uh, one thing where you know we, we did go out in the market uh, and seek out basically a few more offers to see roughly you know what exactly is like uh, what's the rough market like because these things themselves keep did you do it or did you hire an investment banker or a third party to help no, we you? did it ourselves uh, so, so my co-founder raj uh, you know uh, he, he he went out he, we got a few offers we understood how these people are thinking about it and then we uh, this was basically in our heads then to like a way of knowing what's a good price uh you know like given we want to do this like what, what's a good price and yes i think uh once we were reasonably certain that uh you know you'll always uh would want a few bucks more but uh, you know once we were reasonably certain that this is in the ballpark and then you're not getting screwed over here uh, and then you know this is this is roughly good then yeah we went ahead with it so there's so many questions that i know we don't have to get into all of them on this uh because we're, we're got about 15 minutes or so left but the you guys got bought by a private equity firm in California. You guys mm-hmm. are a company in India. The amount of complicate technical complications from like the deal structure to like the the valued currencies, like how did you guys navigate all of that without an investment banker? Um, we had eventually when we do, did decide to you know sign the deal, we had help. Like we had legal help, we had accounting help, and, and all of that. So so that was that was easy. And we were also a US uh, like we had a, a US HQ company. Um, so, so part of that was okay. uh, easy, um, or at least not as complicated. Uh, you know, so so we had help given we made the decision of how to navigate this process, and it still did get fairly uh, complex uh, especially for uh, for uh, so one of my co-founders was based in the US uh, Raj was based in the US uh, while uh, the two of us were based in India so so you know it get a little tougher for us uh, in, in terms of uh, making sure all the paperwork was squeaky clean and all of that uh, but yeah it, it, it once when you know once you decide what you do want to do uh, we had to go just go through those motions so why did you decide to pursue the acquirer that ended up finalizing the purchase? And how were they different than the other buyers? You don't have to give any specifics if you don't want, but I'm just kind of curious for the attributes, not only of the buyer, what they're planning and doing with the firm, but how that was then manifested into the offer. Um, actually, yeah, the, the, the two most important things that struck us is that a uh, one they actually felt like people who could take the company to the next level and it was important for us uh, you know in, in some way to to sort of hand it over to responsible owners uh, <laughs> emotional uh, attachment if you will uh, but uh, you know th- th- that was that was important to us and i think we got the most comfort from the fact that uh, you know they, they would be uh, uh, sort of good stewards uh, of, of the of, of the business they were trying to build a suite of hr products um, you know so they had acquired a couple of products in that category and and 
the recruitment piece was going to be from recruiter box and they were planning to acquire a couple more products in that space so i could sort of at least in my mind's eye see how this was going to fit into their strategy um, so so that that the other thing met, uh, made sense and at the end of the day uh, you know I, I think there was a definitely a large component of that uh, which was based on people so, so we we wanted to know that uh, you know the, the whoever was going to take over the company would they gel with the rest of the company that that we have sort of uh, in terms of the people who we have and, and would mm-hmm. that work well and we got that confidence with these folks so that was important uh, for us you know and, and was it was it obvious to compare those attributes that you just described were those like not a not apparent at all in some of the other uh, other potential buyers um not as much you know so so uh, uh different uh places uh, not in all cases were we getting integrated within another suite of companies which which meant that we had no visibility into uh, you know like who would actually be running like the day-to-day um so, so mm-hmm. in some cases we that wasn't apparent in some cases we weren't as comfortable uh and, and so on and so forth so this was this was basically just seemed like the stars are aligned and, and it, it seems mm-hmm. all right you know uh, we, we didn't feel like we are abandoning something Yep. Yep. Totally. Totally. And so you got an all cash offer. And so there's so many thoughts that I have. First is, did you sell it for too little because you could have gotten more with all cash? And the second is, how did you do that with a private equity firm who typically likes to have people stay on, roll some of their equity to to tend for the hand to, to tend with the, the integration handoff? So uh, I, I think it, uh, we, we were pretty clear about you know what we why we wanted to do this, uh, which was pretty simple. It was it was this or there was no deal, uh, you know. And the second thing was that uh, it, like I said, right? They were trying to uh, merge us with a suite of uh, HR software, and they had a CEO in mind for that. And, and we had spoken with them, so uh, you, you know it, it was it, it was sort of like the the, the perfect thing. Uh, I I mm-hmm. personally felt that the company needed new leadership. Uh, there was leadership, uh, somebody with proven track record of how to take a business in the HR space to to like a to, to like a new level they've done this before so so it was it was relatively easy and, and in that sense you know it actually helps for our investors our buyers to have us out because that that sort of gives them a clean cut and then you know mm-hmm. there are some changes that might be necessary to happen in the company and in which case apart from standard business continuity which which stayed on for about six months on, on a consulting role to make sure that you know uh, uh uh, shit doesn't hit the fan and things like that smoothly <laughs> over, uh, yeah, and, yeah, and so on yeah. and so forth. Uh, apart from those kind of things, uh, you, you know, like it, it, it seemed like a win-win deal. Like both both our acquirers and us wanted it in a certain way, and there was alignment on that. So so that really helped. Uh, and I think given that happened, then we we didn't bother too much about hey are we getting too little or or things like that because those are the more important uh, and higher order bits in the entire thing. Then you know we, we could have made like a few bucks more here or there. I honestly, what you just said, Girish, is like so important. Like you had clarity on like, hey, if I if we made a couple more a couple more bucks over here and the pure headaches that are tied to it, most people, which is what we're trying to beat into people's head with this show, is that being clear on what you want will help you in the decision making process of what you just discussed, right? Yeah. Which is very hard. So then when I how many associates or how many team members did you guys have when you guys uh did the final deal? I think we were around 35, 40 people. Um, we were about 10 to 12 people in the US, uh, the rest of the team in India. Uh, th- that's that's roughly how I remember it. So I'm, I want to go into your mindset after you'd close the deal and you're like, whether you're in your consulting role or you're wrapping up, how do, how do you, how do you, how do you think about the whole journey? I mean, going back to when you were just kind of bootstrapping, trying to figure things out and flopping and failing over the first two years, 
did the imposter syndrome dissipate a little bit? Like, were you happy, sad? Like, give me kind of some of your, your thoughts. I think the overwhelming emotion that I remember around that time was one of uh, relief. You, you know, like I, I didn't have this thing where, uh, where, where you, you know, you're waking up every day, uh, you know, feeling responsible for this large thing. And, and you, you sort of, there's one track of your mind that's always running on that uh, at the very least. And you, uh, I think uh, there was a lot of, worry uh, uh or uh, you, you know the, the, this just stuff that's keep on piling in your head and, and it was good to have like uh i think we took about a year and a half break uh before starting the new company and, and it was good to have like that that carte blanche in between where, where you're, you're mm-hmm. not really you know uh, worrying and reacting to things uh, so, so that, that that's that, that's the overwhelming emotion that i remember like hey okay we did this thing we got it to like a decent shape we, we are out of it now and, and that was most of relief than anything else so I think that's an interesting choice of uh, a word is, you know, there's a lot of like, there's this concept that we talk a lot about, which is separating your ownership role, like the equity that you have in this asset versus your job that you get a wage for or that you're doing. And mm-hmm. when you kind of separate those two, you can, you can have different paths. Like you could technically have hired someone to replace yourself in the business and collecting coupons, you know, just getting the check wired to you. Do you think you ever would have been able to forget about the business and just collected the money? Honestly, uh, you know, when the offer came in, this was exactly the question we had to ask ourselves. Like, <laughs> why do this? Why not do this instead? And, and we realized that, you know, it, it is, it's, it's really hard to do that, you know, because at the end of the day, as an owner of the business, it's your responsibility to make sure that, you know, it is running well. And uh, you could potentially make more money that way. But if, if you're really trying to, you know, do, um, you, you cannot ever switch off from it completely like there's always like a thread that's that's running on around it and if, if the goal was uh just to you know uh make more money risk-free I, I would have still taken that option but if the goal is to do something meaningful with your life and you believe that you have another startup in you and you want to do something like that then then that's a very different math right you cannot do that while having another startup taking one thread of your head uh, that's that's just impossible do you think it and very I, I i love how well you articulated that do you think that um it's because you were the founder like because it was like almost your baby your identity or is it because like, i'm trying to think you know you got a lot of a lot of investors that have a portfolio of businesses that they that they own right mm-hmm. but they're not working in the day-to-day do you mm-hmm. think that you'd be capable of investing in a business and not being in the day-to-day if it wasn't your startup uh, no, I don't think personally I'll be able to do that. That's one of the reasons why I don't do a lot of angel investment today. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think I, I, I'm, I get a little too nosy. Uh, I worry a little too much. Um, yeah, so I, I can I can do one of the two things where, you know, like I, I could sort of uh, even invest and forget, um, which is fine. And for me, as far as I'm concerned, that's money written off. You know, like if, if I never, uh-huh. ever, never, never see that again, that's fine. You know, I cannot depend on it. Or there, there has to be something which is, which is, uh, you know, I'm in control of, or at least partially in control of its destiny, uh, where where I feel responsible for it, and I can actually shape it in some form or the other. I I, I don't think I can do something in between. <laughs> Self awareness, man, and you got it, and I love it. I love it. And just knowing yourself is just is so crucial versus you know learning that the hard way. So, as we're getting close to wrapping up here, I, how did you decide? on the current business and the idea. You know, you said you took a, a year and a half off. Did you already have this idea in your head? Or like what process did you go through to land on this that you were gonna invest the next, you know, chunk of your life doing this? Um, 
so thankfully i was smarter this time uh, and you know we, we basically <laughs> said that hey uh, you know we, we know this bit well like we, we can build products and then we can write code and we can build them out so uh, the, the more important thing that we wanted to figure out this time was to know that we are actually solving a real problem and that problem exists and it's large enough and, and we had some criteria for ourselves and, and we we honestly had about half a dozen ideas that we were exploring um, and uh, one of the things that we did well this time is just go out there and talk to a bunch of people um, having run a startup we, we we knew like a few fellow founders we, we would always go out and validate this and we, we learned how to do these interviews well um, you, you know i think the way i used to do interviews before it used to be like it, it's almost like i want it to be true so I'm, I'm i'm sort of asking leading questions and reinforcing my own ideas in a manner that i, I would uh, I, i'm trying to sort of uh yeah it's it's a rigged interview uh, if if you if you really know oh how man i'm guilty of that <laughs> yeah so uh you know like we, we taught ourselves to how to do this well because and it was easier because now you're not sort of uh, married to it yet and, and so you could be, be a little bit more uh, uh you, you know logical and rational about it and, and we did that mm-hmm. process pretty well and one of the things that struck out uh, and the reason we picked sprinter is that we actually had faced that problem when we were running recruiter box in the last couple of years of running recruiter box we were trying to go up market and we were getting asked for the security security compliances like SOC 2 and ISO 27001 etc and we hired a consultant to help us with that journey and we we you know sort of made up space for it because it is going to take some engineering resources and we had the most um unpleasant 6 months in in product development after that so so we knew personally how painful it was we validated that it it's not like it was just painful for us uh, other people felt the same pain and we said okay great like this is a great problem to solve if you can there's solve there's a it. lot of pain a lot of pain so once you describe what, like so what were the questions and what were the the mandates that were being put on to you and your product team from the the bigger companies um so fundamentally uh, like like i said earlier right like when you're trying to sell the cloud hosted product to a large company they are aware that their data is on your servers and they want you to make sure that you know you have some basic practices and processes in place so that you know this data isn't going to get lost or stolen or you know just sold or something like that so what what they really want to do is uh, you know they they can't check each and every of the vendor directly so what happens in the in, in the process is that there are some standards like SOC 2 or ISO and, and this is no different than you know how you have SATs like each each school is can't evaluate mm-hmm. you independently so you take this exam and they can just depend on the score and you sort of both you and the school decides that this is an independent trusted third party uh, who, who you can sort of uh, trust so that that's kind of what SOC 2 or ISO or any of these compliances are they they're just independent third parties that 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 you can trust so you go and get yourself audited and the requirements here can sometimes become fairly um, you know they, they can vary widely because there's this whole cottage industry of people who are trying to make sure that uh, you you meet the requirements and but there's a certain amount of subjectivity to it so it could go to things like hey you need to have fire drills in your company and you need to have video surveillance in your office space and, and you can mm-hmm. you need to block the usb ports of your employee laptops and uh, some crazy things like that to to things that actually make sense that hey uh, you know you need to make sure that your servers are encrypted and they are being monitored or uh, when employees leave your company you make sure that you're closing their accounts uh, so that they don't have access to it so these these there are some stuff that makes sense but you know they get mixed with other stuff that may not necessarily make sense and so on mm-hmm. so forth so there's a ton of work that happens here um, in implementing this program but the more important uh, or the harder part was that not only do you need to do this work there's a lot of paperwork and documentation that goes along with this work so not only do you have to do the work you need to prove that you're doing the work and that's the part where it becomes really painful because the auditors can't trust your word for it uh, you know the, you need to keep on collecting 
documents and policies and uh, spreadsheets and, and everything like this is this is like a whole chain of things that comes beyond it and, and that's the part that really becomes painful and nobody wakes up in the morning saying that hey i want to do compliance and, you know <laughs> so we realized that amen okay, to <laughs> that so so yeah i mean uh, that that seemed like a good problem to solve to, to go after uh, it was a very complex problem and uh, you know it's it, it it's especially complex because the goal here is to become compliant and you need to make sure that the this the stakeholder which is the auditor is also happy with this entire thing so we actually started working with the auditors first which was counterintuitive you know before we started mm. working with our customers and we said that okay tell us what you look for uh, when, when you're going through an audit and we sort of built backward from there and and sort of then we understood okay now i know how to meet your requirements and now we go and tell customers that okay if you want this compliance you know this is what an auditor looks for mm-hmm. this is the gap between where you are and where you ought to be and, and we're going to help you automate this gap and that that became like a relatively simple pitch <laughs> I, I i i can only imagine like back when you had a recruiter box and you went back to your dev team and you're like hey by the way all these fun things that you want to do that's in the product roadmap, we're going to be doing these things. And the only analogy I can have, and it's just my stupid mind right now thinking, it's like, I've been doing a bunch of updates in my house, like gutters and like this concrete apron in front of my house. And like, shit, that's just not fun. I'm like, I don't want to spend money on this stuff, but it's got to be part of it. And it's like, this is the same thing with compliance. Like it's necessary, but developers probably don't like it. You know, you got the management that's got to manage the whole process. It's just taking away from everybody's time. So the moral of what I've heard on this conversation is, is when really miserable problems are surfacing, call you because you're going to say, this sucks. I'm going to figure out how to eliminate this process (laughs) or automate it because I mean, it just... How how are you guys like what what's your vision for it now? I mean, because everybody's dealing with compliance and especially with the cybersecurity issues going on these days. Like what, what's your what's your vision for the business? So we want to become the trust currency for you know the cloud commerce. And, and the the way I look at this is that it's especially the small guy who gets uh, uh, you know uh, who sort of short change in this entire process. The large companies have the resources and the wherewithal to actually implement uh, compliance programs in, into the environment. And uh, you know like they actually can throw people and resources and money at this problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what is really happening is that the, the it's increasingly becoming clear that you need these compliances to get a seat at the table. And if you're a SaaS mm-hmm. business who gets like this great customer through the door, you do all the hard work and, and you know get the champion in there to, to understand the value of your product and they are ready to buy you. And now they slam saying that, hey, you need to be compliant. And then now you're like, hey, what do I do now? And I've been in those shoes and mm-hmm. it sucks. It, you, you don't want to let that go. It, it feels so unjust, so unfair. So the way we look at this is that you know our job is to try and level the playing field we're going to give everybody the same resources so that they can actually play at that table on the uh, on the on the back of what their product actually does and, and what, what they're supposed to do not on the back of some technicality that hey you're not compliant we can actually get you there this is not going to take cost you a fortune we know what what it takes we can get you there in a reasonable amount of time in fact 10x faster than most processes would in a reasonable amount of money so that's the way i look at this uh, I mean, what an awesome why, you know, the, the Simon Sinek why. I mean, I can just see the passion in your face and it seems like you found your niche to be able to, and you're in, in something that's purpose, purposeful that you can get rewarded for. That's, it's awesome, man. So I know I'm, I'm, we're a little over time and I, I want to be respectful of it. So I got two final questions. Um, the first one, I love asking what the word intentional means for people because it's the name of the show. And I think there's at, the amount of variations I've gotten in the definition are awesome. So what does the word intentional mean for you? To me, it means that, uh, you know, it's it's more than a 
you need to have a plan for it you know otherwise it's just just a just a wish you know being intentional about something is like you, you got to have some plan around it and by plan i don't mean the details uh, you you know you need to have some structure you're saying that this is what i'm ready to give up for it and this is what i want to actually get there and this is at least my current hypothesis of the steps that are involved it's fine if this won't work out but uh, unless you're doing that it's not intentional I love it. And then this last question is, where can people find more about you, Sprinto, and everything that you got going on? Um, yeah, so do do check it out. Check us out on Sprinto.com. Uh, I'm Girish at Sprinto.com. Do drop me a line if there's anything you feel I can help you with. Would love to chat with you, help you out in any manner as possible. Uh, happy to share notes on anything that might be helping you to grow your business. Uh, you know, uh, do drop me a line. Thank you so much, Girish, for coming on the show. This has been an absolute blast. Yeah, same here. I uh, I really enjoyed being here. Thanks for having me, Ryan. What a story Girish has. And I'll tell you what, I want that level of clarity that he has on how he was able to articulate why he made the decisions for everybody listening in. And there's two real big ways to get that kind of clarity. One is go check out our intentional growth online training. You can hire uh, myself for four calls and that's a total of three grand with the training. You can join one of our virtual cohorts, which is two grand comes with the training and a group, uh, four group calls. And I just really want everybody to understand valuations, what they want, all the different exits so you can grow value and create the choices that you want. And the other takeaway I'd say is understanding the finances I know is just grueling for people, but understanding how the decisions that you're making in front of you impact your value and your cash today and your strategic plan, I think is unbelievably just fundamental to having some peace of mind as an entrepreneur, knowing that you're putting your time and resources into things that are going to actually make a difference and move the needle for you towards the goals that you have. So go check out the training at Arcona.io or take the intentional growth assessment. It's 22 questions. And again, there's videos on what good looks like and the, on the results page. Uh, the links are in the show notes. And again, stay tuned for episode 300. Uh, we're marching towards uh, a new uh, a content strategy and a lot of mini themes and things I think people are really going to be excited for. So thanks again for tuning in and I will see you next week.